Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. Today I'm joined by Reverend Jay Waxenberg, an interfaith minister and spiritual counselor at Boulder's Center for Medicinal Mindfulness. In this episode, Jay talks about how his interest in understanding reality as a boy led to his study of consciousness, his exploration of psychedelics, and his introduction to spirituality. We then talk about Ram Das and the lessons Jay learned from Das on his own journey. Next, we discuss best practices for psychedelic harm reduction and how psychedelics can be integrated with other spiritual practices. From there, we talk about the difficulties associated with conducting research on psychedelics due to their Schedule One substance designation and how that has impacted Jay's work in the DMTX research project. We end the discussion talking about medicinal mindfulness and the help they're providing for spiritual explorers looking to safely work with psychedelics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and tonight I'm here with my friend, Reverend Jay Waxenberg. Jay, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us. I think a lot of exciting stuff that we can talk about tonight. Uh, Jay and I met through Medicinal Mindfulness, which is a really, really awesome clinic uh, here in Colorado in Boulder. And so maybe to kick things off, uh, Jay, maybe you could give the folks a little bit of uh, your background and um, you know, how you ended up at Medicinal Mindfulness. Sure. An interfaith minister and um, kind of all of this stuff started for me uh, at the same time. So the spiritual stuff and the psychedelic stuff. Um, and I was going to school for um, studying consciousness at the University of Miami and happened to be like the most grounded in this reality person on <laughs> in the whole program. Uh, people were making fun of me, actually. I was so much rooted in like consciousness. And there's nothing else going on here. And like, why worry about all the spiritual stuff? Uh, and I had a professor who kind of took me to the side and said, you know, have you thought about psychedelics or anything in that space? And uh, so I said, you know, yeah. And same week, that same week, uh, a shaman had been staying at a friend of mine's place. And they invited me into the um, ceremony for ayahuasca. That was my first kind of raw experience of any of the psychedelic stuff or spiritual ceremonies for that matter. And it all kind of propelled me forward uh, through my life. Uh, it essentially just took everything and made a hard turn towards spirituality, towards uh, trying to understand consciousness and, uh, you know, psychedelics and all of that stuff like that. And a uh, few years of traveling around and studying spirituality only. And then a few years of studying just psychedelics and training and how to hold space and psychology. Um, and then found a wonderful place at medicinal mindfulness that kind of brought it all together and really gave me a space to be the full version of myself, which is the spiritual counselor and the psychedelic guide. And yeah, that's, it's been a great journey. Wow. And excited to learn a lot more about some of those, um, some of those key moments on your journey. And so to start with, I'd be curious to uh, hear what drove you to major in consciousness before you'd had any psychedelic experiences. Mm. 
Yeah. So I think I was always just kind of questioning reality. I um, just wanted to know what was going on. Like, how did we get here? What's, what's, what's up with all this? And so it started with undergrad. I was doing history and towards the end of my undergrad, I switched into sociology and philosophy. Uh, then I took a, a little bit of time off and in the time off, I was just consuming as much like modern day, like quantum physics and philosophy and just trying to understand, you know, what's going on. And each time, like the questions just got bigger and bigger. And so eventually I was like, okay, I'll go back to school and the philosophy space and really try to understand the philosophy of consciousness. Like, cause the science is, it's not really fully there. And so I always feel like philosophy is a few steps ahead of science as far as like asking questions and trying to understand things. Uh, so that's kind of what pulled me into that space was uh, really just keep asking like what's going on here <laughs> the questions just got bigger and bigger that's cool and what was it that as a kid made you question reality hmm. yeah you know i don't know yeah that's a really great question i'm not really sure what kind of triggered me down that path of just wanting to know what was going on i think uh possibly it, it was related to the fact that um so i have two moms and growing up in the south like it was just very weird like two moms in the South. And then plus I was Jewish. And so I had a last name that was mm. Waxenberg. And so the combination meant like I was kind of different than everybody else. And so I wanted to know like, okay, well, why, why am I different? And that led me into like history questions about like, how did we organize our society this way? And um, that then led me into the wider questions about, you know, the nature of being a human being. Wow. That's really cool. And what's Really remarkable about your story is that you had a professor who was willing to pull you aside and say, hey, this might be an experience that would be beneficial to you because, I mean, even, even if they knew that to be profoundly true, just given those structure of society right now, I mean, they could have potentially, I'm sure, lost their job just even recommending that to you. Yeah, gosh, I like, I won't mention his name here, but sure. I'm so, so blessed for his presence that, so like, Right before that ayahuasca ceremony, I told my mom, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and whatnot. And she just said to me, like, okay, well, just don't drop out of school, you know, whatever comes up in that experience. And of course, like I woke up the next day after that experience and I was like, okay, I, I got to drop out of school. <laughs> <laughs> All I want to do is, is study this and know more about it. And uh, so I emailed like a hundred and something professors that I had taken through my undergrad and graduate classes. And basically said, like, I want to study psychedelics in some way or another. And they all said no, except for one professor who was like, oh, you know, come on in. Let's talk about it. So uh -huh. I, I think I wrote up maybe 10 pages or something like this about why it's like, you know, very important to study this. And I brought Wait, it into you this, his, been? this was 2016. Yeah. Okay. And I brought it into his office and he like, like basically tossed out the paper and like looked me in the face and said, like, did you have a psychedelic experience? And I said, yes. And he was like, was it really meaningful? I said, yeah. And I kind of told him a bit about it. And he was like, okay, well, great. I'm, you know, I'm the head of this department and I'm also your dean. And so no one needs to read the papers, but me. And so let, you know, go as far as you want, do what, do whatever you want to do. And I'll create that container for you to study it. Wow. So tell me about what that first ayahuasca experience was like. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely, it was definitely the, you know, what it, what it like the psychonauts really seek it right this like ego death kind of unity experience you know all is one and i had been studying consciousness before this and so was 
really vaguely familiar with people like Alan Watts and kind of some of their notions about, you know, the nature of reality. And I remember at the peak of that experience, I could like hear Alan Watts's voice just kind of like giggling and being like, yeah, that it's all true. Like it's all, it's all of that stuff. And it was just, there was a moment before that, that was the, the death kind of the ego death experience, which is re- it was really tough for me. I remember both shamans had to be like on either side of me, like going through a bunch of stuff to, to kind of hold me in place. Mm. And, uh, but right on the other side of that was this perfect unity. It's all one. I was connected with all of reality and, uh, it really just propelled me out of the old way of thinking. Cause I was in this very materialistic you know, view of the universe, which just, it shattered in that one moment. Wow. Were you in the rainforest? Uh, no, I was in South Florida. So these were traveling shamans and oh, cool. that six months afterwards, I got to go up and down the East coast with them as they, uh, traveled. And what was that experience like? You know, uh, in retrospect, I, I would have handled it so different, but at the time I was just like, just starting to understand spirituality and just mm-hmm. starting to understand all this stuff. And so I really treated it very academic. Like I was on the outside. I was always there like writing some kind of paper and uh, didn't really get to drop into the experience the way that, you know, later I would with other trainings and, and psychedelics. So it, it was wonderful because it was wonderful to see so many people be healed and go through that. And it really like hammered home to me that, you know, ayahuasca can, can heal PTSD. It can help people get over addiction and all this stuff because I, I watched that kind of cycle through, but, um, so yeah, super powerful, super beautiful. And I'm very thankful for that time. Yeah. And so then you graduated from Miami. Yep. I graduated and, um, just, I went full tilt. Like as soon as I graduated, I think I told my family, like, um, you know, psychedelic spirituality, that's the thing I want to do. Uh, they definitely did not like that. <laughs> and, uh, it was, yeah, that was hard to navigate for a bit. I was like, my extended family disowned me for a while. Um, and, but it, that also kind of came at the right time because I ended up selling everything I owned, my car and my apartment, all the stuff that I had kind of collected in the last decade. And then just, I just traveled on, with a backpack for um, at least two and a half years before I kind of landed a little bit. And, uh, that was just staying at different ashrams and temples and zendos and, you know, just following any teacher that felt like they might have an answer to what psychedelics and spirituality were. Hmm. And so what were some of the more meaningful experiences that happened on those travels? Hmm. Yeah. There's so many, it's like hard to really pinpoint some, but I'd say like one of the first big experiences for me was I, I stacked a bunch of Vipassana silent retreats back to back, three of them. And if anybody who's done a Vipassana silent retreat knows that like it's, it can be kind of torturous. Um, but so I think it was maybe the second retreat. So I had gone almost like two weeks of silence or three weeks of silence and just meditating like eight hours a day. And I had a moment where like I came out of one of the meditations and it was, it was just like a psychedelic experience. Like I was back in that ayahuasca experience and just, but just walking around 
and for me that was a real big turning point because it was like oh it was real like that mm-hmm. psychedelic experience was just as valid as this experience because it's the same thing like i'm experiencing it right now um and so that was probably one of the big big moments for me another big moment was um finding the ramdas community he was just you know just such a perfect teacher for psychedelics and spirituality and yeah i i met so many people who had similar stories like you know this big powerful psychedelic experience and then needing answers to it and, and finding um you know like be here now or something as a real blueprint so that was like a good coming home experience and um another big one would be going to india and guru hunting i went with a handful of friends from the ramdas community and we were just we were just trying to find teachers who were hanging out in that space all the time and um you know meeting people that could literally invoke like an mdma experience within me like just being in the same room as that person mm. really like you know it bent my mind into to ways to recognize like oh it's not just you know an experience in a psychedelic sense or through meditation but it's also like you know people can be that experience um yeah so those are some of the, the big ones for me for sure yeah yeah you know it's interesting um one of my 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 um teacher's assistant described in my in my master's program was describing this uh, experience with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi where she experienced spontaneous higher states of consciousness just by being around him and and that was that's such just a wild um conception right for for us Mm -hmm. in the western world to even even wrap our heads around and yeah. Like, yeah, I would just love to ask more about like what what that's like. <laughs> yeah, like I think until you experience it, it so you know the words just like a psychedelic experience, really. Yeah. The words don't fully capture what's going on in the space. But yeah, I can I can remember the first like the first time it happened to me it was like we were in this small ashram in the middle of the desert, and kind of we were just checking off the list like oh let's go check out this guy and see. What goes on there and let's go check out these caves and see who's there and and we walked in and like three out of the five of us just immediately started crying wow and like i i felt like somebody it felt like taking a large dose of mdma and like right at the come up of that experience where your heart just kind of bursts open and it, like it was just 100 <laughs> this guru sitting there and uh so we, we ended up spending several weeks there just hanging out and had a lot of funky experiences like that, you know, people will talk about when they talk about being near these um, enlightened beings or these, you know, higher consciousness beings where, you know, time doesn't feel real. And there's like weird synchronicities that just get turned up to the max. And uh, it really just felt like a prolonged uh, trip, you know? Yeah, that's that's so that's so wild. Um, and I want to go back to something else you mentioned as you were talking about those experiences. And the first one you said was when you're in that, um, in that meditation retreat, meditating for eight hours a day, and you had that transcendental experience or or however you want to frame it, um, that lets you know that that psychedelic experience was real. And, you know, that's something that I think the with the war on drugs and the culture we have on psychedelics, right? The, the stigma against 
psychedelics is so pervasive and and multifaceted, right? And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. think about the stigma of just it being illegal, being a drug, but then also, you know, it's going to fry your brain, blah, blah, blah. But for folks like that have actually had the experience, I think that stuff's typically easier to get over. But one of the places I've continued to struggle is having had the ego dissolution experience on psychedelics and having read the spiritual texts, I believe intellectually that that mystical experience is no different than the one experienced by saints or prophets or whoever throughout the ages and therefore no less legitimate yet still sometimes I, I struggle with that. Like I, I still want to minimize it to some, in, in some way because of, because of, I think just how we've come to view psychedelics and drugs in general in this culture. Yeah, man. And, and I think you hit it right on the head there's like, it's a nuanced, um, process right like you'll find the people who are like just say no and and the you know like absolutely not it's all bad it's just a drug and then like you go deeper and deeper into the process and the conversation and you'll find like layers to people's resistance around it and one of the ones i i really bump up against now a lot but i also did when i was just traveling and you know directly asking monks and yogis like what's up with psychedelics and it was like the way that I can best kind of frame it is there's kind of two big camps right now in the spiritual world. There's the folks who are like from the sixties and seventies who kind of take the line of, I think Alan Watts said this as like, when you get the phone call, you can hang up the, the phone or when you get the message, you can hang up the phone. Like essentially, you know, use these as training wheels or use them to open the door and then, you know, put them down and and go back to real genuine practice or something like this which I always found kind of ironic because people telling me this were monks and nuns who, you know, who were Westerners who gave up their whole lives, traveled to, you know, India or Nepal and became monks and nuns based off of one or two psychedelic experiences. And I always was just blown away of like, so you just, you never went back. <laughs> you just stayed with the meditation. Okay. That, that's fine. And um, the other kind of school of thought now, which is, kind of where I think I find myself in and and where I want the conversation to really be around is like, can we integrate these into our spiritual mm-hmm. practices? Maybe, you know, maybe it's not a, a daily thing or a weekly thing or a monthly thing. Maybe it's a seasonal thing or a once a year type of thing. And I remember I just went to the Jewish psychedelic uh, summit last year and they had a panel of like six rabbis who were like, yeah, like once a year I go and I take some mushrooms or something wow. to just just check in with that space and, and remember that it's there. And uh, the last little thing to think about too, is that they, they did a study with MDMA in the eighties. I can't remember. It was like 84 or something with Benedict um, uh, monks. And they were just like, you know, go through your regular practice, but you know, take this MDMA. So like go pray and, and go meditate, but do this. And afterwards they asked one of them, uh, you know, what the experience was like. And they said, it was like, you know, you're hiking in uh, like the mist in the mountains and the NDMA is like clearing the mist away for a moment. Mm-hmm. And you get a, a glimpse of the peak. You get a glimpse of where you're heading and, and how far you've come and, and, and kind of that kind of clarity. And then the mist kind of comes back. Wow. You know, and it's funny what you say about Alan Watts, cause uh, you know, I've, I've heard that quote as well too. And it's been, it's something that I've certainly, you know, gone back and forth on. But yeah, I was listening to uh, 
Sam Harris's app, he just added a bunch of Watts lectures. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And one of the ones that Watts was talking about on psychedelics was like, and it wasn't that specific quote, but it's something to those extents of like, okay, but then don't get lost in psychedelics. Don't keep using them. But then he goes on to say like, with the exception of, you know, of course, of like you're a writer like me, who's going to be writing about these experiences. <laughs> Other people need to hang up the phone, but you're good to keep rolling, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, guess, I think, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, uh, I think there's a place to recognize also what Ram Dass said, which is like, he has this like great piece where he talks about how high he tried to get. He kept trying to go get higher and higher and, and stay high. And they like, there was a period of time where he like locked himself in a room with some people and just, they just took as much LSD as they could for weeks. And, and then, you know, came back down. And so what I'll usually tell with clients is like, you know, we're, we're going to go up. Everybody's going to go up. You're going to go up in the psychedelic experience, but then you're going to come right back down. And the name of the game, I think, is to raise the floor. So it's like, can we combo psychedelics with spiritual practices and spiritual paths? And the practice will raise the floor so you don't come all the way crashing back down. And the psychedelics just give you that kind of peak glimpse where you can see like, oh, I know where I'm heading. I know where I've been. And, you know, keep me, keep you moving along. Yep. Yep. Like I just Huxley said, something like, uh, you know, to insist upon the hardest way to occasion every spiritual experience would be like saying we need to burn down the pig house every time we want roast pork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I butchered it, but you know, the, it's much, much more yeah. eloquent than his words. <laughs> yeah, all the same for all the quotes I use here. <laughs> like, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Funny. Um, so you talked a lot about the Ram Das community and, uh, and it's and like his impact on you. And so maybe you could tell uh, a little bit more about who he was and, and his story for folks who may not be as familiar. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's the best man. You know, um, so very close with Tim Leary, both of them. Um, he was Richard Alpert at the time, both of them were at Harvard and they were the first to kind of pioneer, um, Western studies. So they started kind of studying it, um, and a semi-academic. If we look back at that now, it's not considered academic. At the time, it was considered academic. But they ended up, you know, just give, dosing grad students all the time and, and then started giving it to, um, you know, all this Huxley's crew and, um, and who was that? Uh, Houston Smith at MIT. So they would just give it to, you know, great thinkers and, and philosophers and musicians and poets and um, just basically they, they said at one point they had like a big chart that was just how many doses they had given out and they had fallen into the trap, which I think a lot of people nowadays, um, still kind of have in the back of their minds, which is like, oh, if I just take this, I'll be enlightened. Or if I take this, I'll be healed. Or if I take this, you know, whatever, it's the thing that will fix me. And this was kind of before they realized all of those things. Right. Um, they ended up getting both of them kicked out of Harvard for some, you know, giving it to somebody they shouldn't have or something along those lines. Timothy Leary went on to, you know, campaign to be the governor of California and was like tuned in dropout type of thing and just tried to dose as many people as possible. And Ram Dass, or Richard Alpert at the time, went to India 
and kind of did what I did, which was just like, okay, I want to find somebody that has a map for this space that knows what's going on there. that can tell me, you know, <laughs> which way's up and which way's down. And he found his um, spiritual teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, and, you know, spent a lot of time with him, wrote Be Here Now, which became like the hippie kind of Bible uh, of the 70s, and came back and spent the rest of his life, uh, you know, just giving lectures and teaching and um, really bringing the spiritual growth that he had in India, along with his all of his psychological education and psychedelic experiences and put it all to kind of together into one space, which is, you know, why I resonated so much with him, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. So how did you get connected to the Ram Dass community originally? Yeah. So during that uh, academic phase, my professor gave me some book, uh, like the Harvard psychedelic club or something like that, which kind of just outlined everything I just said about their lives. Um, and kind of he used it as a medicine wheel and in, in, in some sense for me of, okay, we're, you know, Ram Dass went spiritual, Timothy Leary went political, um, Houston Smith went academic, um, and I can't remember the other one that was with them off the top of my head, but he did something in the medical space and basically asked me, like as a professor, like, which, which one of those paths, you know, feels the right one for you and the spiritual one did. And so I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I think I Googled it afterwards. I Googled him to find out more information about him. And I realized he was still alive. And I was like, oh my God, he's still alive. Like, I have to go see him. I have to figure this out. And so I signed up for the the next, the very next spiritual retreat that he was giving, which ended up falling right after that consecutive silent retreat space. And so I was super blissed out, you know, just hanging out in that space and then bumping into a bunch of people that were younger, which was really nice because all the other spiritual communities, people were much older. And the younger people all had similar stories of powerful psychedelic experiences and they were all craving what I was craving, which was some legitimizing of that space. Like Ram Dass was doing that for us, but we wanted more legitimate, you know, like this is a real thing. It's, it's real. And that's why we started looking for gurus and like other ways into that, that, that space to just confirm that what we were experiencing was real. Wow. And I remembered what I was going to ask earlier. So when you were talking about that, um, experiment with like the Benedictine monks and taking MDMA, it reminded me of the, was it the, the, uh, good Friday experiment is that what it's mm-hmm. called? Yep. yep. Yeah. And could you remind me like, if, if you're familiar, like what, what, what was the specifics around that event? Yeah. So they gave a bunch of seminary students, um, LSD or placebos and, and they found out really quickly that the placebo, you know, like compared to LSD, it doesn't really count. And so the, Study now doesn't necessarily qualify as academic because the placebo didn't feel like a double blind situation, uh-huh. but they did maps did follow up like 20 something years or 30 something years later. And the seminary students still said that it was the most meaningful mystical experience of their lives. Um, and so it was, I think there was every, not everybody, but I think it was like 10 or seven um, had, you know, these peak mystical unity experiences, which, you know, propelled them forward on their seminary path. But the one thing that most people don't talk about is there was one student who had a negative reaction, ended up like running out of the church and, um, I think taking his clothes off and screaming and, uh, they had to sedate him and and calm him down. And, um, so I always found that interesting. It's like, yeah, like 
you know, 10 people are going to have these really beautiful experiences, but one's going to have a really yeah. challenging experience. Yeah. You know, it's interesting just hearing you talk about how many of these folks are saying that it was such a profound mystical experience for them. And to your point, like even in the spiritual communities of this day, like it, it's still for whatever reason seems to be delegitimized as mm -hmm. a spiritual experience, or if not fully delegitimized, at least less, <laughs> less, I, I don't know, or just like less, less okay. Right. So it's just something you don't talk about. Maybe you had one of these experiences that kicked things off, but like, that's it. And you know, we don't, we don't discuss it any further. Yeah. And I'm always, I'm, I'm just blown away by it because there people will tell me like how impactful like one LSD experience was and how it changed their whole course of their lives. And, but then they'll at the same breath be like, okay, but put it down and like, you know, grab your mantras and, and your yantras and, and don't think about it. And, um, I think also it's, it's a holdover of what happened. Right. So like yeah. Ram Dass and Timothy Leary were out here just giving it to everybody. And one out of those 10, right. Are going to have these really challenging experiences. And it, they were, people were young, people were traveling around. They didn't have the psychological support they have now. And so people could really spin out into these really horrible places and it could break their lives. And I think there's still like a fear around that and a, and a recognition of that, which is really valid, but also just it, it to me, it feels like a shame of, of going to the full extreme, right? Like the one extreme being like, let's just give everybody LSD and, and psychedelics and it doesn't matter. And the other extreme being like, okay, these are super dangerous. Let's not touch them. Let's not figure out how to way, uh, figure a way to integrate them into our lives or anything like that. And I think there's a middle path somewhere where we can find, you know, good structures to put these things into. And that's where I feel really the, yeah. for me, the sadness is around uh, these spiritual teachers who are so against it. Cause it's like, wait, no, talk to us, like help us put it into a container, into a ritual, into a ceremony, into a, a series of practices that will help propel somebody forward in a, in a much faster way than, you know, 30 days in silence. Okay. Can maybe we can, can we do three days in silence with this and like, what would that look like? And, but yeah. you know, people are really resistant to even having that conversation. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and as you talk about that, it, it, it triggers to mind, uh, you know, the other person who I know that, that you mentioned to me, uh, was, was one of your kind of three, uh, most important spiritual guides on the journey, Terrence McKenna and, and his idea mm -hmm. of like the archaic revival. Yeah, and just you know, bringing back that you know why why shouldn't psychedelics play an important part in a in a revival of these ancient shamanistic partnership societies, community with nature, not domination of nature. Like why nature has blessed us with this incredibly effective, practical way of occasioning mystical experiences. We know the way to do it now in the right set and setting. Like, uh, like, uh, and I understand that it's, you can't just necessarily go from really illegal people not knowing what these are to them being everywhere and, and, you know, kind of regurgitating what happened with Timothy Leary and everything. But it just, I don't know. It's just mind blowing to me that it's like, that there's still this aversion to them within the spiritual community. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Terrence McKenna is like, he's such a, uh, such a trickster. I love him. Like just the, Oh, the way he could throw out like a dozen ideas that were so radical and so different and, and just play in that space. And I remember 
watching a, an interview between him and Ramdas actually, where Ramdas was essentially like kind of forced to take the position of like the hang up the phone space or at least training wheels or something like this. And, and Terrence Kuhn at the time, and this is I think probably the early the mid eighties or early nineties, somewhere in that range. And he said, you know, do you think we could wake everybody up in time? Do you like, do you think that we have enough time for everybody to learn from gurus and everybody to learn how to meditate and go through these processes and everything like that? And at the time, like Ram Dass kind of skirted it. But here we are now in you know 2022, and it feels like it's all turned up. Like society is. is really in trouble right now. And we're really trying to figure out a way to handle things like climate change and you know, globalization and all these other pieces. And and so now I, I think that question is even more valid of, you know, do we have the time to not use these tools? Do we have the time to not figure out spiritual paths that can incorporate psychedelics um, to speed up somebody's journey through like at least the early stages to get the glimpse of that top of that mountain to know like, okay, you know, we all are one in some capacity. Are we the interconnectedness of reality? that will really, I think, um, just drastically change civilization. Even in the cannabis work that I do, somebody will come into that experience, you know, trying to work on some piece of trauma or history or something. And they'll come out of that experience and they'll go, you know, I need, I need to be in nature more and I need to you know, eat a little bit better. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I need to stay in this job that's doing this damage or this thing like that. And so I think we just need that. We need people to to wake up faster than um, mm-hmm. we have before. Yeah, yeah, that was beautifully said. And and I don't mean to also imply that you know it's it's a complete you know um, minimization from the spiritual leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Deepak certainly is big on it, or has, has talked about it openly and stuff. Yeah, they're definitely coming around. Like the yeah. conversation is definitely shifting, and and I think it will continue to shift. I know you know there's. The, the Jewish community in particular is actually turning towards this question um, in a you know in a more institutional way, which I find amazing and beautiful. And yeah. I think if we can get some of the other big traditions to start doing the same, it'll you know it'll kick off. And yeah, it's not going to bring all of the you know the conservative folks and in, in different traditions forward and stuff. But if we could just get like a handful of of the traditions with like major, you know, churches and major synagogues and temples, uh, you know, figuring out ways to incorporate this and integrate it well, it'll speed us forward, I think, uh, in a a lot of really beautiful, powerful ways. Totally, totally. Um, So I'd love to ask you about psychedelic harm reduction. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Any particular piece of that? Yeah, I guess just more broadly, like, what is, what does that mean? What why is it important? What can people who may be newer or just uh, you know don't, haven't had the resources to know how to take psychedelics in a safe manner? Any any advice that you could provide? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is you know just do research. Right, there are so many wonderful organizations out there now that are you know putting out free content, putting out ways to you know really prepare yourself and and, and get you know, into a safe uh, container for this. Uh, so that'd be like the first one is just do do your research, you know, but never go <laughs> go blind into these experiences. And um, 
and then set and setting, right? We learned that from the 60s and 70s, which was uh, like probably the big takeaway from that time period of like, you know, where are you when you're doing these things? Are you at like a rave and or a party or, or you're with people that you don't feel safe? You know, like that's like, that's the number one way to have a bad experience. And then um, the set of just like, what content are you bringing into that space, right? Are you in a really challenging moment of your life? Or, you know, like, do you, should you be taking it right now? Or should you wait to process some stuff in a sober state? Um, and then the third piece of that is a skill, right? And so we now know techniques that work really well in those spaces, right? Mindfulness practice will go a long way in a psychedelic experience. Having you know, baseline understanding of your own psychology will go a long way in that space and your own trauma will go a long way in that space. And so just, um, you know, set setting skill. Those are the real, uh, the big three. And then, you know, also it, it like, I, I need to name this because it's just such a big shadow piece right now within the psychedelic field, but because it's illegal or, or most of them are illegal, there's a lot of underground practitioners. And so it's people going to underground circles or underground individuals and just being really safe with that and doing your due diligence yeah. on that, because there are a lot of people in that space that are just, you know, using it for power or using it for money and, you know, they're not safe. And we, and we see it even within the, you know, the, this most recent um, big break in the, the maps um, world of even, even trained psychologists can, um, can hurt people in that space. So it's just, you know, doing your research, your due diligence, finding somebody that's going to be really safe to hold you and, and knowing your set setting and your skills. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I think it's, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the additional harms, unfortunately, that are arbitrarily you know, put into the space because of its inclusion in the controlled substances act. And mm-hmm. you know, a couple others that unfortunately fall into that category are since it's illegal, you don't know, what you're really getting ever. So you got to be really careful with where you're getting the supply and then dosage information can be harder to find. Although thankfully I think that is coming around, but it's just Mm -hmm. something as an illegal drug, people don't necessarily pay as much attention to as they really should. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a huge piece of just the fact that it is illegal means you don't really know what you're getting or you can't right now. I can go to a cannabis dispensary I could find the exact strain and the and what percentage of THC is in it and all these other really, you know, important things from my physiology and like how I'm going to interact with this thing. But you can't do that with mushrooms. You can't do that with LSD or MDMA or any of these other things. And when it comes to things like MDMA, it's like you don't even know what it's going to be cut with. It's been, you know, it, it, multiple times it, it cycles through or fentanyl or something will come through and an overdose a spike. And so it's just you know, th- there's also plenty of places to find test kits online legally. It, it, they're illegal in certain states. They're legal in other ones. So just finding, you know, again, due diligence and research about you know where you can get these things. But there are tons of test kits. And I would always suggest that of like, it doesn't matter really what you're taking, like make sure you know what you're taking before yeah. you take it. That's so crazy that test kits are illegal in some states. <sighs> I know. It's insane to me. Like, it's insane to me. It's like, how are you going to make the testing illegal for this? They should be, there should be free testing in my mind, especially at festivals or these kinds of things where it's like, we know people are going to be imbibing these substances. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, you know, 
well, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but maybe it would be interested to get your thoughts on research and how the Controlled Substances Act has really made that more difficult in the psychedelic space. And I think then we can get into you know how that potentially is, has impacted you directly through DMTX. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's a uh, it's just a, it's a real mess. It's a real mess. What, what drives me crazy is things like THC, for instance, or Schedule One, which means there's no there's no benefit. There's nothing that it could do, while simultaneously the government is patenting different parts of the cannabinoid system because they are patenting it as medicine. They know that it's mm-hmm. like healing in some way. It's like it bonkers. And when they make it Schedule One. Then it's like, you know, it's a climbing a mountain just to get permission to use it in a study to see if it would work or not work. And, you know, I, there's plenty of people out there who will talk about their journeys through the MDMA space to try to get that legalized. Like MAPS just really had to hammer over and over and over again to get that and through the process. And same with DMT and psilocybin. And yet at the same time, it's like every single study that comes out is just like, this works, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of dangers and we got to hold it in a really special way, but it works. It, it works. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it's just, it's a real pain. It's a, <laughs> it's a real pain. And it, and it, it's like a headwind, you know, when it comes to any of these organizations, how much money they have to dump into the legal process, how much money they have to dump in the regulatory process. And then that jacks up, you know, the prices, it, it echoes back and, you know, I, I think we've briefly talked about this before with my work in the DMTX program, but it, it, that's what happens to us. It's like, I think we have four law firms on retainer or something like that. It's just, it's an insane, you know, just to move forward, just a micro inch, you know, just to get in a conversation with a lab or, or something. Yikes. Well, um, on a better note, let's talk about what is DMTX. Oh, Yes. Yeah, so this is like um, the pet project, the fun project that I work on, where like my work is divided between the clinical side, which is you know working with clients, spiritual counseling, the training side, which is training guides and facilitators, and then we have this third branch, which is kind of our research uh, space, which is the DMTX program, and the X being for extended state because DMT is the most powerful psychedelic on earth, and it's the most fascinating one and it's also the fastest acting so they used to call it the businessman psychedelic because the full experience can be done in about 20 minutes and you could hop in a vehicle like an hour later and be at work so it's totally contained experience but it's also just so jarring because it's so fast and it's just this instant you know yank out of our reality and into another reality and um, Rick Strassman, who pioneered uh, the psychedelic renaissance, essentially, his work in the 90s on DMT opened the door to the rest of these things, um, you know, really talked about in that time of like, wow, it's this doorway to this other world and people are coming into contact with entities and um, other things like that. But it's just it's so fast acting. It, like, I'm not sure if it's you know going to be the real thing to heal people. And then. Um, Andrew Gallimore, that's the name. Andrew Gallimore, who's a scientist in Okinawa, I believe he's that's where he's at right now, wrote a bunch of papers on, okay, well, now we have all the numbers from Rick Strassen's study. 
I think we could just put DMT into an anesthesia machine and keep people in that space for a prolonged period of time. So he wrote up this paper and then worked with um, Rick Strassman again. And so they wrote up another paper and basically said like, yes, this is, it's possible. We can do this. It's a thing. Um, but nobody, nobody's really super interested in that right now. I think Imperial College is the only space other than ours, which is even considering working with extended DMT. And for us, it's more, um, I, I would land in the world word playful, but it's, you know, we take it very seriously and we hold mm-hmm. it with a lot of intention, but we really just want to explore that space and see if it's real and see if, you know, keeping folks in that space for a longer period of time brings the same type of healing that comes from say an ayahuasca experience, you know, without the cultural damage that can be done with that, without the damage of like cutting into the rainforest to get these supplies you know, all of those things they had come with that and um and then be really safe and easy with the dose is just like exact for what somebody needs. So there's just a ton of possibilities that open up in that space. But mm. that's the that's the the plan right now. <laughs> wow. So maybe to kick off, could you explain a little bit more about you know what is DMT, what is ayahuasca, what are some of the uh, and I, I know you touched on some of these, but just like some of the more things that are like really unique about DMT versus some of the other psychedelic experiences. Sure. Yeah. So dimethyltryptamine and DMT, uh, it is the most powerful psychedelic on earth. And we've known about it. Humans have known about it for thousands of years because um, folks, tra- tribes in the Amazon have made it into a brew. So they took a root it's a MEOI inhibitor and mixed it with a root that has a lot of DMT in it. And together you can ingest that. And that leads to, you know, about an eight hour experience on ayahuasca, which, you know, for me was the most powerful experience of my life. And I've seen that and heard that from many, many other people. And um, so that's kind of the combination. That's the only way to really get it orally, but you can smoke it or vaporize it. Um, or, you know, in our case, put it into an anesthesia machine um, and just the pure form of DMT. And that experience, you know, smoked or inhaled, it's, you know, about 15 to 20 minutes peak experience, so about three to five minutes. And in that time window, it's, the you know, it's turning up the dial for, I'd say, any psychedelic experience where, you know, with something like psilocybin or LSD, you usually need like a larger dose, you know, five grams plus in the case of um, psilocybin to get these like ego death travel to a different universe kind of experience. Whereas DMT, it's like, you know, microscopic uh, dose compared to that. And it w- it's almost guaranteed that that experience will happen in some capacity or another. Um, and then the fact that it's produced in our bodies. That's the part that also really blows my mind. It's an endogenous um, substance, which means, you know, it's it's produced slightly in our liver a little bit. It's also produced in um, our brain when we go into REM sleep. So we get, we get like very microscopic amounts then. And then when we die or have a near-death experience, there's this big dump of DMT. And that's also kind of where it's getting its name as the spirit molecule. Like Mm -hmm. there's this real fascination. And at least for me, that's what sparked my real interest in it is this way. So it's this thing that happens when we die and, and, you know, and it it elicits a near death experience nearly every single time. 
what's you know what's going on here like what what role does this play in our evolution what role does it play in the nature of reality um and so those are really just like the the fun like wow what what is this thing and and why is it in us it's also in every and nearly every ecosystem on earth it's something like 80 percent of the ecosystems on earth um so it's 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 all around us all the time it's crazy yeah do you think when you're deep in meditation and having it and you know those experiences can happen like could that also be some form of of release of dmt there are certainly people who believe that we don't have the studies yet to kind of bank that space up there's like um, big breath work communities who work um, what's called like DMT breathing and um, trying to elicit that experience. But we don't ha- yet have any uh-huh. kind of scientific academic proof to back that up. yet. Gotcha. Um, and so what have been some of your experiences on DMT? Yeah, um, mostly the typical experience that people will talk about, like, um, you know, instantly being shot out of my body towards the center of the universe. Um, and then the stuff that's just real fascinating to me is the entity encounters. So it's like, I've experienced a lot of these different psychedelics and outside of ayahuasca and DMT, it's really I mean, like an experience of me, right? Whether I'm interacting with reality in some capacity or I'm interacting with some version of myself, my traumas, my, my higher self, uh, you know, something like this. But uh, with DMT and ayahuasca, they're the only ones that I really felt like there's something other than me in that space interacting with me. And that's like, yeah, that's the big takeaway for me of, of, of DMT of just like, whoo, what, what, who is that? What is that? Is that real? Is it just a part of me that, you know, doesn't feel like me, but then why don't I experience that with say psilocybin or ketamine or something else, even though, you know, I'm getting into that same space where everything kind of merges into one. It's this I thou relationship um, that doesn't really come across in other psychedelics. Hmm. Have you been able to communicate with the entities ever? The, um, The ayahuasca ones for sure. It feels like, there's a bit of back and forth there, um, but not so much on the the DMT level because it's just, it's so quick. You know, mm-hmm. I don't. I, I basically have enough time to realize that I'm interacting with something, and you know, then I'm kind of yanked out of that space. Hmm. What did they look like in the bear in the ayahuasca versus the DMT sessions? Hmm. You know, it's it's real hard to describe you know, any kind of one piece of a psychedelic experience because, you know, you're feeling all of the things at the same time, right? Like the yeah. colors and the shapes and the sounds, and then there's an emotion evoked in you. And and so it's kind of all blurred into one. Uh, the closest I could really describe it is like, I feel like the ayahuasca had a very, uh, you know, mother ayahuasca. It was a very feminine and a very kind of earthy, um kind of sense to it whereas the dmt entities were more like you know i I would say closer to the extraterrestrial you know explanation of something it's like a being of pure light and love and there's also kind of a more um, mechanical feel to the dmt space it's hard to put into words Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
like almost more like geometric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's like all of them bring up some version of, of geometry, which is, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's gotta be some connection to this and sacred geometry and yeah. like all of these ways of interacting with our reality. And um, so there's that element too, but there is just like, there's a sharperness, like sharpness or mechanicalness to the, to the DMT that, I mean, I don't know if everybody experiences that. Uh, it's it's pretty common, and from from the folks that I've interacted with on the DMTX program, and um, there's also a question in my mind too of like synthetic versus natural extraction of DMT. And you know, I think my early DMT experiences were many years ago, and I don't know if it was synthetic or natural, and um, so hard to kind of piece out what what's going on in that space exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and then how does NMDMT vary from 5-MeO-DMT? Mm. Yeah, fascinating uh, because they're radically different in some senses and, and very similar in other senses. They're both you know, very fast acting. Both of them have some version of an analog in our bodies. Um, DMT, NMDMT, it, which you know is what what I'm mostly you know working with and interested in has what I explained before this I thou relationship where there's still some version of your consciousness in that space even if you feel like you know the the barriers between you and reality are melding or merging in some capacity there's still a recognition of like oh this is me interacting with this thing um, where five meo DMT is this unity experience that blasts that that away and the you kind of fade away and there's not this interaction between you and something else because it's all kind of one thing um and uh it's interesting because in talking to dmt manufacturers and trying to you know legally find paths that we can uh, make the dmtx program happen most of the folks that we have interacted with in the lab side have been like well we can give you five meo dmt you know right now if you'd like it Huh. which always blew us away because 5-MeO is generally considered even more powerful than DMT as far as just like a, a powerful experience. And it's one of those things where even holding the space for 5-MeO DMT, you know, we at least take the position of that you need even more training than you would uh-huh. with regular DMT. Wow. Have you had uh, any 5-MeO DMT experiences? I actually have not. It's definitely on my list of things to do before, uh, you know, before I die. But uh, I just haven't. Before you actually die. <laughs> yeah, before I really die. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Um, are you familiar with uh, Graham Hancock's work? Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I haven't read um, his one that he did like more focused on. You know, ayahuasca DMT, although that that like, is on the top of my list, but. I read his most recent book and he was talking about um, basically that uh, one of the stories that he learned about ayahuasca and DMT was that, you know, the, the native peoples had said these supernatural beings brought them to the rainforest and then left them ayahuasca as a way to communicate with them. So, I mean, it, it's as wild as this all can sound to folks, like it actually is a pretty consistent story that there is some non human entity in this in this transcendental space yeah yeah it's a 
it's fascinating to me because that I almost mentioned that when I had mentioned, you know, what DNT was and, and ayahuasca. Because that's, you know, they they consistently say that across many different tribes and groups of people. They're like, no, the you know, the spirits told us that this is how you do it. And like on the face of it, you know, as Westerners, we can really discard that really easily. But at the same time, it's like there are millions of plants and combinations. And like, how could they possibly have known that this plant has DMT in it and this plant has a 5-MeO inhibitor? And together they create this thing that just, you know, blasts you into another reality or allows you to communicate with the spirit world or, you know, however language you want to frame it. It's, yeah, it's truly like mind blowing and, you know, Mm -hmm. feeds back, I think, and, you know, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but it feeds back into, uh, I think a movement that's happening right now in modern philosophy. And I was picking up on this when I was, um, in 2016 when I was studying it. Uh, but now it's kind of picked up speed. And I think because of the psychedelics, this is the case. There's also been several studies to back up what I'm about to say, but basically panpsychism, which is a philosophical mm-hmm. view that, you know, consciousness is the fundamental nature of reality and, you know, matter and other things come out of that experience. Um, and that, you know, panpsychism in some way lines up really well with animism, which is just the, the kind of baseline for indigenous cultures of like, you know, everything has a spirit and it's all kind of one thing connected. And somehow I think these things are all spinning around each other in a constellation as we as Westerners and Western civilization trying to wrestle with, you know, what, what does our next version of spirituality look like? What does our next version mm-hmm. of culture look like? And I think in some way psychedelics plays a role in connecting us to these other ways of viewing consciousness. Man, I, uh, that was so well said. And I, I just, uh, I'm super excited to see this confluence of what's happening right now in all these different fields of research. And I would add our geochemistry to that mix, right? And mm. you're seeing more and more compelling evidence that origins of Christianity may have had a lot to do with the psychedelic mm-hmm. sacrament, which could have been then borrowed from the Greeks, which used the same sacrament for the, all of these great thinkers like Plato and Socrates. And like, the more you unravel this onion, the more the story fits together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Th- there's tons of great research coming out for that. And same in ancient Judaism, they just found cannabis in several temples and you know, it's it's just like a, a recognition that it's actually pretty unusual as a culture that we have gotten rid of um, any of these mind expansive, expanding substances. And, you know, we, we sanction things like alcohol that's, you know, great at numbing, you know, our pains. And we've sanctioned things like coffee, which is really great at speeding us up and helping us work. But we, you know, ostracized all these other things that would help us you know, recontextualize our life and, you know, process our traumas and come together in community. And um, I think we're also seeing the result of of pushing those substances so far away from us. We are where we are, but it it feels like there's a lot of momentum picking up to take things in in the right direction. And you're certainly a huge part of that. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Oh, yeah. And so are you. I mean, getting it out here in podcasts and just helping helping it just seed in people's consciousness that these things aren't these evil, demonic, dangerous things that we need to like push away from us. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And it's just like, even talking about it openly, right. And you were talking about this 
you know, with, with regards to spiritual leaders. And then I'm currently um, taking a master's in consciousness and I see it in my class. Like I'm one of the few people who I think feels pretty comfortable just bringing up these experiences, even though like several of my classmates have either, you know, offline or, or one off in class. And like, yeah, I did have this experience and it was one of the most profound in my entire life. And we're in a course studying consciousness yet still People are, you know, just struggle to be honest and open about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's also, I mean, it's a huge part of our trainings too. I think our, our first level training, when it's just like, how do you sit with people in these spaces? And, and what comes up so often is the trauma of the, you know, war on drugs. I'm just like, I can't, I can't talk about this. I can't hold it in any way. Like the, the resistance that comes up in people. And uh, it's just, it's such a shame because, you know, even to this day right now, we can go back now and look and listen to Ronald Reagan and listen to um, Nixon's, uh, I can't remember the guy that was the head of. John Ehrlich. Uh, yeah, yeah. We listen to these guys say, oh, we made them illegal to hurt the hippies. We made them illegal to hurt black folks. We made them illegal to stop the anti-war movement. And at the same time, they're patenting, you know, different parts of these things and putting it into like MK Ultra and studying it. It's just, it's a real shame because it's, it's so very clear to us that, that these were never illegal because they were, you know, harmful to us. They were illegal because they were harmful to the government. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, while all this is going on, our intelligence agencies are going to be profiteering off of the illegal tra- trafficking of drugs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. But um, on, on that note, you mentioned, you know, the training that you do and uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what is the work that you guys are doing at Medicinal Mindfulness? Yeah. So our training program is called Psychedelic Sitter School. And uh, originally it had started with our founder, uh, Daniel McQueen. Basically, he was going to be an underground practitioner, like knew it ahead of time, but was like, OK, I want to get all the skills that I need in order to do that. Um, and then cannabis became legal. And he was like, actually, let me just try it with cannabis and ended up seeing how powerfully healing it could be in the right containers and built a protocol and a training around that. Um, and his wife, Allison, who runs our clinic here, worked on the MAPS MDMA studies. So she brought all of that information into the space. And we created this really wonderful program of like, okay, how do you sit and hold space in the, these things? and you know, what are some of the things that could come up in that space? And then we got a level two training, which is like, like how do you how do you guide somebody in the space? They're in a really challenging, you know, loop or moment in the journey. And you know, what what are some inter- interventions that could kind of help somebody navigate through that? And then we have a level three, which is you know, clinical work. You know, what like how do you hold trauma? How do you help process trauma? Also, all of these are talking about preparation and integration, and like how do you have those conversations with people? And then we have just a ton of electives, which, you know, range from um, first aid, which is like crisis intervention, you know, anything that would be like an overdose, bad reaction to the drugs or something like this, um, to now we're, we have ketamine practicums, you know, so how do you kind of work with ketamine? And hopefully in 2023, which is it's kind of the other big project I'm holding, um, international retreats for psilocybin and DMT and facilitating those as well where, you know, you'll have opportunities to experience the medicine in a legal safe container, and then also help hold space for somebody in that experience. 
Wow, that's really cool. So you're staying busy is uh, the long and the short of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, very, very busy. It's it's amazing because I came on really 2019. So I was there for about a year before COVID really hit. But you know, the bulk of my work has been during COVID, and we have just expanded. You know, I mean, added seven therapists to our clinical team, added three or four, you know, um, administration on the training side. It, it just growing and growing. Now we're adding different medicines in the international space. So it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful thing. And if someone is interested in either coming in for a session to, you know, talk about their life and, and how to use psychedelics safely, or even going through the, uh, the training programs, do they have to live in Boulder or, or what's uh, the best, you know, kind of process for next steps for them? Yeah, fortunately, you know, because of COVID, we had to move into the online space. And so Psychedelic Sitter School um, is available in a virtual format right now. It's actually our, probably our primary. We do in-person trainings, but uh, you know, our in-person is maybe 12 people and our online you know, gets up into 40s and 50s. Um, and so that's super accessible. You can go through that process uh, virtually. And then kind of the same thing for the clinical side. You can come in for sessions, but if it's just harm reduction or you know integration processing or any of these kinds of things, we can coach over state lines, and so we can do a virtual Zoom and that kind of thing. That's interesting. So there's like a a regulatory element to what you're what the course is for that like it depends on when they whether they have to be in state or not. Yeah, well, for the clinical side, there is okay. regulatory because our our clinical side is working with um, ketamine and cannabis, and so. That ketamine is a federal thing, which, you know, we have a DEA license and have to go through all of these things. And um, that can't be done over state lines. And then the cannabis piece, because it's not federally legal, can be done over state lines. Um, but we usually don't like to do our first sessions with somebody virtually. Um, mm -hmm. So it is an option technically, but we, we really prefer to do in-person for medicine work. God, just the like weird wackiness of our drug laws just the hoops <sighs> tell me i mean when i started working at this clinic the ketamine became legal while we were working at the clinic they gave us our dea license but cannabis was still not legal like we couldn't smoke in the we're like hey, <laughs> cannabis is not legal right now what's going on here so funny it's so funny um and i meant to ask you about well actually what well, two things um one uh exciting and I didn't even know this was going on, but I was at the park on Sunday, but, and someone uh, mentioned that they're looking to put um, psilocybin on the ballot for the end of this year mm -hmm. and hopefully legalize it uh, like in, like in Oregon. So that'd be pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, there's a big, there's two big movements. I think it's going to be two different ballots um, for Colorado, not to get everybody's hopes up. I don't think either will pass right now, mm -hmm. but um, it's great that there is the movement to pass them. And that, you know, people are engaging in the conversation of like, you know, what, what do psychedelic clinics look like? What do, you know, how can we, do we decrim? Do we legalize? You know, so um, it's the wild west right now. Who knows which states will go where and how they'll do it. And everybody, I think, is holding their breath in Oregon to see like, how does that all pan out? Um, but it's moving, you know, everybody's yeah. trying for sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I realized I forgot to ask you when we were talking about DMTX. How has the process gone for you guys in terms of actually getting the regulatory approvals to get everything going? And, and where are you in that process? 
yeah, that, that has been a real journey, <laughs> a real journey. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's not really possible in the United States right now. So all of our work is focused on, um, you know, international locations and spaces. Um, so it kind of moved while I've been working on it from a space of like really theoretical to um, actually talking to DMT manufacturers. Um, you know, I think Canada and the UK are the main ones we've been in conversation with. Um, and so it's really working with them to figure out, you know, can they export it? What are their, what are their restrictions on it? And then working with our allies in Costa Rica and Jamaica and other places on importing licenses. And, uh, you know, we keep, we, there's so many gray areas and there's so many spaces of like, you know, can this work? Can this not work? And we could basically get it working right now today, but it would be in a gray area. And we don't really want to do that in any way, shape or form because there's just, yeah, there's so much writing on this and we're, we're connected yeah. to the training and the clinic and we don't want to endanger anybody's licensing and we don't want to endanger anybody's process. And so it's just moving real slow. It is moving though. Uh, you know, several, several manufacturers have basically said yes in, in, in the exporting space. And we've had several folks on the ground and um, those other countries saying yes to the importing. And it's just a matter of, you know, kind of dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and really it's all of these uh, legal pages. That's why we have four yeah. legal spaces on retainer right now and really making sure everything is iron clad and, and super tight. And so that, um, you know, we can do it without anybody uh, being in danger in any way. Sure. Sure. Wow. Well, we'll have to have you back on after, uh, after the, uh, you guys, you know, get everything going and, and have it happen and, and learn hear what you learned about. Oh yeah, definitely. That'll be far out. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to find, but it's going to be far out. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you will not be the same person you are today. <laughs> no. Awesome. Well, Jay, thank you so much for uh, coming on. This has been such a blast. Oh yeah. So happy to do it. And thanks for having me. And, you know, thanks for just creating a space like this for folks to talk about these things and, you know, bring it into everybody's consciousness. It's super important. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'll, uh, I'll make sure to post a link to medicinal mindfulness for anyone who wants to check it out further um, in the show notes. So Jay, thanks again and have a great rest of your evening. Thanks. Outro for this and all episodes is available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Please enjoy. Thanks everyone for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's take some time to talk about DMT and its potential for establishing interspecies communication. Now, for the hardened materialists out there, this idea that drugs could actually be used to communicate with entities in another dimension is likely a bridge too far to cross. These wackos have really lost it on this one, right? But is it so crazy? In this episode, Jay mentioned the concept of panpsychism or the theory that consciousness is the foundational essence of the universe through which we are all connected. I've become convinced that panpsychism serves as the best model of cosmology we humans have yet developed, at least by people not locked under non-disclosure agreement within secret military and intelligence programs. In part one of this outro, I'll discuss some of the physics of panpsychism and its relevance for our ability to communicate with sentient, non-human beings. Specifically, I'll be referencing Dr. John Hagelin's mathematical formalism of panpsychism 
with the unified field of consciousness theory. In part two, I'll discuss some of the projects and technologies which I believe hold the most promise for developing communication with these beings, including the DMTX program. Part one, the physics of panpsychism and its implications for interspecies communication. One of the most important people in the development of modern panpsychist philosophy was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Maharishi, who'd spent 12 years living in the Himalayas learning ancient Vedic wisdom, also studied modern physics at Allahabad University in the 1940s. Maharishi came to recognize that the field of pure consciousness as described in the Vedas and the unified field theory pursued by modern physicists were one and the same thing. And on Substack, I've included one of my favorite charts from Dr. Craig Pearson's book, The Complete Book of Yogic Flying, which highlights the qualitative similarities between unified field theory proposed by string theorists and the field of pure consciousness as understood by Indian rishis for over 5,000 years. Maharishi explained that the entire cosmos could be described as a self-interacting field of being or pure consciousness. This field of being ranges from the unmanifested, absolute, eternal state to the gross, relative, ever-changing states of phenomenal life, as the ocean ranges from the eternal silence at its bottom to the great activity of ever-changing nature on the surface of the waves. Maharishi noted that being has two sides, one being absolute, the other being relative. Years earlier, Einstein had argued that everything in the universe is relative, and the existence of worlds, phenomenon, and form could only be accounted for in terms of relativity. Maharishi would state that Einstein's theory was not wrong, but rather incomplete, as it only concerned itself within the realm of manifest creation. Maharishi further recognized that Einstein was open to the possibility of one common denominator of all creation, as Einstein had spent the last years of his life searching for a unified field theory or theory of everything. In 1966, Maharishi noted that the day does not seem far off when some theoretical physicist will succeed in establishing a unified field theory. Maharishi's prediction proved correct when in 1987, physicist Dr. John Hagelin published Is Consciousness the Unified Field? A, a Field Theorist's Perspective. His theory of the unified field of consciousness provides a mathematical model uniting Einstein's geometric theory of gravity with the electromagnetic force. Importantly, Hagelin emphasizes that the discovery of the unified field is not a philosophical development. It is a scientific development of the foremost order, a rigorous mathematical development based upon the Lagrangian of the unified field, a highly mathematical formula that describes the self-interacting dynamics of unity at the basis of all the diverse laws of nature governing the universe. And again, on Substack, I've included Hagelin's mathematical formalism of this equation, which reads like hieroglyphics to me, but emphasizes the point again that this is not a philosophical theory, but rather one upon which we can and have built applied technologies. Now let's think about the cosmos in the context of one structured by the unified field of consciousness and how this relates to our more familiar dimensions of space and time. The following comes from a declassified report in which Army Intelligence Officer Lieutenant Colonel Wayne McDonald analyzes the Gateway experience, which I'll discuss further in Part 2. Physicists define time as a measurement of energy or force in motion. It is a measurement of change. However, in order for energy to be in motion, it must first be limited in some way 
within the confines of some sort of vibratory pattern so that its confinement gives it the capacity for being contained at a specific location which is distinguishable from other locations. Space. Energy which is not confined is force without limit, without dimension, without the limits of form. It is infinity, cannot move because there is nothing beyond infinity, and is therefore outside of the dimension of time. It is also beyond space because that concept implies that a specific energy form is limited to a specific location and is absent from other locations. But if energy is in the state of infinity, there are no boundaries, no here to differentiate from there, no sense of area. It has no beginning, no end, no location. It is conscious force, the fundamental, primal power of existence without form, a state of infinite being. Energy, therefore, should be considered within the context of time, space, and consciousness. Let's next consider that there are three categories of dimensions relevant for this discussion. Number one, classical space-time dimensions. Number two, intervening dimensions. And number three, the absolute in infinity or the unified field of all the laws of nature. The first category, classical space-time, is where most of us spend our waking existence. These are your familiar three dimensions of space, length, width, and height, bound by a fourth dimension of time. Physics, as accepted by consensus science, holds for units of energy greater than the Planck scale, which can be expressed in distance, time, or energy. For simplicity, I'll refer to Planck distance, or 10 to the negative 33 centimeters. The third category, the unified field, is known by physicists as simply the absolute and is the state referred to by Lieutenant Colonel McDonnell above when he described unbounded energy. This primal state of existence is also what has been called names like God, the Holy Spirit, and pure consciousness by spiritual traditions for millennia. As is said in the Rig Veda, truth is one, but the wise know it as many. Now category two, the intervening dimensions, this is where the fun begins. This relates to oscillations of energy smaller than the Planck scale, but that are not at complete rest. In John Hagelin's words, there is little reason to believe that the familiar concepts of space, time, and causation have meaning at the Planck scale. Gravitational fluctuations at this scale are expected to produce a phase transition in the structure of space-time geometry at the Planck scale. Thanks for bearing with me during this physics-heavy part of the essay. Now, what's the point? How does all of this relate to contact with sentient, non-human beings? First, let me say that I've come to believe that the universe is far more complicated than we've been led to believe. That there are all kinds of living entities outside of our familiar human, animal, and plant life. And so I hope people recognize that the further outside of the boundaries of our dimensions of classical space-time the more abstract reality becomes. For simplicity's sake, I'll highlight two types of sentient beings with whom we should be establishing communications. First, transdimensional entities who exist in these intervening dimensions. Therefore, they are not bound by our understanding of time, space, and causation, do not necessarily have physical bodies, and are not necessarily bound to the human construct of death. These entities include beings such as spirits, angels, etc. Number two, extraterrestrial biological entities who live on other planets in our known universe and are thus 
bound by the same classical physics of space-time. However, these EBs have developed technological have developed technologies sophisticated enough such that they're able to travel transdimensionally through these intervening dimensions. With all that in mind, now how do we talk to them? Part 2: Possibilities for Interspecies Communication. In considering the development of interspecies communication, I think about broad strategy in three categories. Number one, the development of technologies to assist human consciousness in transitioning to these intervening dimensions wherein we can communicate with beings in energetic form. Number two, the development of a language wherein we can communicate with sentient beings who have manifested on or near planet Earth, either in physical or energetic form. And three, the development of consciousness-assisted technologies that can phase in and out of these intervening technologies. These technologies will eventually be able to take humans in physical form to other places in the universe and not be bound by our classical laws of space-time when doing so. Here I'll focus on categories 1 and 2 as they require less sophisticated technological advancement. However, I'd note that certain unacknowledged special access programs within the military intelligence industrial complex are likely much farther along on the development of category 3 technologies than most of us would imagine possible. DMTX, or Extended State DMT, Type 1 Communication. As we think about transitioning human consciousness to these intervening dimensions, one aspect of human physiology that shows up repeatedly is the importance of the hormones controlled by the pineal gland. This includes serotonin, melatonin, and a special psychedelic compound. You guessed it, NN-dimethyltryptamine, or DMT. Not only is DMT produced endogenously, it can also be ingested exogenously, typically either through smoking pure DMT or by drinking it in ayahuasca, a brew that combines DMT with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which enables your digestive system to break down the DMT. Users of DMT consistently report the complete replacement of normal subjective experience with a novel alternate universe often densely populated with a variety of strange objects and other highly complex visual content, including what appear to be sentient, intelligent, and powerful beings, many of which actively interact with the individual. While the state of consciousness produced by smoking DMT is one of the most extraordinary of all naturally occurring psychedelic substances, the duration of its effects is extremely short, typically less than 20 minutes. This short duration makes academic inquiry into this state of consciousness much more challenging. This issue led pharmacokinetic researcher Dr. Andrew Gallimore and DMT researcher Dr. Rick Strassman to, pro to propose in 2016 the use of target-controlled intravenous infusion of DMT to prolong the DMT state, using the same technology as currently used to maintain stable brain concentrations of anesthetic drugs during surgery. As Reverend Jay discussed in this episode, this paper led to the creation of the DMTX program led by Jay, Daniel McQueen, Dr. Carla Clements, and a team of about 24 volunteers. Jay and the team are now in the final stages of launching the study to research this realm of extended state DMT, including whether they can establish consistent communication with these powerful beings. The DMT state of consciousness experienced by modern explorers is consistent with those experienced by the native tribes of the Amazon who've used DMT and ayahuasca for thousands of years. In his book, America Before, 
investigative journalist Graham Hancock describes the origin myth of the Tucano people. The origin myth speaks of a time, eons ago, when humans first settled the great rivers of the Amazon basin. It seems that supernatural beings accompanied them on this journey and gifted them the fundamentals upon which to build a civilized life. In this period, the spirit beings prepared the land so that mortal human creatures might live on it. Once that task was completed, however, the supernaturals returned to their otherworldly abodes. Before leaving, they took care to provide mankind with the means of communication, of establishing contact with them whenever there should be need. Mortal men should not be left alone without the possibility of communicating with the spirit world. The effective means of contacting the spirit world turns out to be ayahuasca, a plant that opened the door into another dimension, a drug that produced visions in which the spirit beings revealed themselves to men, talking, teaching, admonishing, and protecting. So in summary, native peoples working with DMT have always understood the substance as a portal to communicate with the spirit world. Modern psychonauts using DMT consistently report encountering sentient beings external to their own consciousness. And the physics of a consciousness-based cosmology supports the existence of intervening dimensions in which these entities can exist. Maybe the materialists are right, and these beings just represent nothing more than hallucinations from our unconscious mind, and the stories of the native Amazonians are simply myths to teach lessons. Or... Maybe these beings are actually real, and we should learn what they're trying to tell us. Activating the pineal gland, type 1 communication. Accessing legal, exogenous DMT is difficult for the, ma- the vast majority of the world due to its inclusion as a Schedule One substance in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 and the UN Convention on Psychotropic Substances of 1971. Thankfully, Mystical traditions throughout the ages have developed advanced meditation techniques to activate the pineal gland, also known as the third eye chakra and the eye of Horus. These techniques support the occasioning of mystical experiences without the need to ingest a psychedelic compound. In the modern era, Dr. Joe Dispenza has been one of the leading researchers of the pineal gland and its ability to transition consciousness outside of our dimensions of classical space-time. His applied techniques have helped practitioners achieve transcendent states of consciousness. While I'm not aware of any Dispenza meditations focused on communication with non-human sentient beings, conceptually his pineal gland activation techniques should work the same as the DMTX program. Dispenza explains, The pineal gland is a crystalline superconductor that sends, as well as receives, information through the transduction of energetic vibrational signals frequencies beyond the senses, also known as the quantum field or unified field, and translates it into biological tissue, the brain and the mind, in the form of meaningful imagery, the same way as an antenna translates different channels onto a TV screen. Dr. Dispenza's meditation techniques emphasize many of the physiological effects needed to transition consciousness into intervening dimensions, including, number one, the piezoelectric effect of calcite crystals in the pineal gland. Number two, the movement of breath through the nervous system to exert intrathecal pressure on the pineal gland. And three, positive emotions from the heart chakra to amplify the transduction effects of the brain. The gateway experience, type one communication. 
The Gateway Experience is a course of advanced meditation techniques designed to guide meditators from the physical waking state through deep relaxation and ultimately into unexplored dimensions of consciousness. These tapes are designed to help practitioners control non-physical energy and develop skills to considered to be paranormal by most, including remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, and contact with non-physical friends. The Gateway Experience was developed by the Monroe Institute, founded in the early 1970s to facilitate the exploration of human consciousness. In part one, I referenced a report analyzing the Gateway Experience written by Army Intelligence Officer Lieutenant Colonel Wayne McDonnell in 1983. The report was declassified in 2003, but did not receive much attention from the public until a few years ago. One thing I want to highlight here. Today in June 2022, most of the general public still does not believe in the science of consciousness or the ability of humans to develop psychic abilities. However, this is absolutely not the case within the intelligence community, where the truth in these abilities is considered somewhat of an open secret. Most people think that mind control programs like MKUltra and the remote viewing program led by Russell Targ and Hal Putoff represent the full extent of the intelligence community's work on consciousness. Unfortunately, the true depth of these secret programs is much more extensive, remains highly significant, and continues to this present day. Putting all that to the side, McDonald's report was written to assess how the Gateway Experience works and its practical application as a training tool for other members of the intelligence community. McDonald writes, Fundamentally, the Gateway Experience is a training system designed to bring enhanced strength, focus, and coherence to the amplitude and frequency of brainwave output between the left and right hemispheres so as to alter consciousness moving it outside the physical sphere so as to ultimately escape even the restrictions of time and space. What differentiates the gateway experience from other forms of meditation is its use of the hemi-sync technique, a state of consciousness defined when the EEG patterns of both brain hemispheres are simultaneously equal in amplitude and frequency. The gateway experience takes advantage of a phenomenon known as Frequency Following Response, FFR, in which the brain mimics the same frequency pattern of what the person is hearing. The FFR technique leverages binaural beats, in which the left ear plays a frequency slightly below the right ear, say 10 hertz, for example. This tricks the brain into picking up this difference in frequency, the beat, which is a frequency that cannot typically be heard by the human ear, and helps put the brain into a theta brainwave pattern. Theta brainwaves are typically associated with sleep, so this process facilitates a unique physiological state wherein the body is asleep but the mind remains alert. Further, McDonald highlights the importance of resonance in facilitating the transition of consciousness into intervening dimensions. The gateway experience helps to alter the fundamental resonance pattern of the human body by eliminating the bifurcation echo of the heart so that the sound of the heartbeat can move synchronously up and down the circulatory system in harmonious resonance approximately seven times a second. By placing the body in a sleep-like state, the gateway tapes achieve the same goal as meditation, in that it places the body in such a profoundly relaxed state that the bifurcation echo slowly fades away as the heart lessens the force and frequency with which it pushes blood into the aorta. 
As a result of this brainwave coherence and full body resonance from the elimination of the bifurcation echo, human consciousness is now primed to pass into these intervening dimensions. McDonald goes on to explain, To enter these intervening dimensions, human consciousness must focus with such intense coherence that the frequency of the energy pattern which comprises that consciousness, i.e. the brainwave output, can accelerate to the point where the resulting frequency pattern would look virtually like a solid line. Any oscillating frequency reaches two points of complete rest, which constitute the boundaries of each individual oscillation. For an infinitesimally small instant, when energy reaches one of its two points of rest, it clicks out of time-space and joins infinity. That critical step out of time-space occurs when the speed of the oscillation drops below 10 to the negative 33 centimeters, Planck's distance. Once again, by learning how to transition our consciousness into these intermediate dimensions, we should be able to communicate with other intelligent beings in those dimensions. Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind Protocols, or CE5, Type 1, Type 2 Hybrid. CE5 involves humans initiating peaceful, bilateral contact with ETs through conscious, voluntary, and proactive cooperative communication. Dr. Stephen Greer, who founded the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence in 1990, developed these protocols as a means for establishing diplomatic relations with extraterrestrials. Dr. Greer had experienced both extraterrestrial encounters and had a near-death experience in his youth which gave him the conviction that ETs were real and that everything in the cosmos was unified through consciousness. Dr. Greer also trained as a transcendental meditation teacher and like Dr. John Hagelin, much of his work is built off of Maharishi Vedic science. During CE5 events, groups of meditators collectively project thoughts of peace and invite ETs from around the galaxy to show themselves in any manner which is safe and appropriate for them to do so. Meditators vector in their specific geographic location while in deep meditation, then use a combination of lights, tones, and or electromagnetic equipment to communicate their exact location in our classical dimensions of space-time. Groups of meditators are able to initiate the CE5 protocols more successfully than individuals due to the field effects of consciousness and what's known as constructive interference. As Hagelin explains, The radiated power emanating from a group of meditators will grow as the square of the number of meditators in the group, i.e. grow quadratically as opposed to linearly. This is because the amplitude or height of a wave is equal to the sum of all the contributing waves that occupy a common space. Yet the power of that resulting combined wave is proportional to the square of the height of that wave. That is why, for example, the volume of two loudspeakers playing monaural sound in close proximity to each other is two squared or four times the sound of a single loudspeaker. It is also why the intensity of laser light grows as the square of the number of photons in the beam. This is a universal principle of wave behavior known as constructive interference. The Language of the Universe, Type 2 Communication The above methods in essence all rely on the establishment of telepathic communications with sentient beings. 
While this is entirely possible in a panpsychism-based cosmology, there are likely a wide variety of other means for communicating with beings who have manifested on or near Earth. Certain energetic forces appear to behave consistently throughout our known universe and thus could be leveraged to develop a language of the universe. This includes mathematics and sacred geometry, harmonics and resonant frequencies, light waves, and electromagnetism. So to wrap up this discussion, I'd again emphasize that we already have a number of technologies that can help to facilitate interspecies communication with transdimensional beings and extraterrestrial biological entities. Additionally, as our scientific paradigm shifts to a consciousness-based paradigm from a, from a mechanistic paradigm, I expect researchers and engineers will discover all kinds of new means for developing languages with these entities. I can understand how this can seem like a silly or trivial exercise, but I insist it is of the utmost importance. I believe that the day is fast approaching when human society will be forced to acknowledge that these beings of higher intelligence do exist and have always existed. When that day comes, we need to have the tools to establish diplomatic relations. Otherwise, we'll have only one tool in our toolbox for interacting with these beings, war and violence. As they say, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Let's not forget, last year the U.S. Space Force spent $15.4 billion to develop space-based weapons and programs. It's approximately $15.4 billion more than the U.S. Foreign Service spent developing a diplomatic core for our inevitable interaction with extraterrestrials. It's probably safe to assume that this gap in government preparedness is only going to increase over the coming years, so it's incumbent on we the people to prepare for peaceful interactions with non-human beings ourselves.